You know, life in a pandemic has required us to live without a lot of things. And it started with, of all things, toilet paper. If you can remember, there was that run on Charmin. Who would have guessed that it would start with toilet paper? But there it was, and yet we survived, though perhaps our bottoms were a little worse off for the wear. Many of us have had to live without haircuts. Some of us still. Students had to survive without in-person classes, and many are looking to the fall and still having to live without in-person classes this fall. Many of us have had to live without the vacations that we had planned for this summer. We've learned to live without the Olympics, without the NBA Finals. You know, as a church, we've had to live without and adjust to a life where there are no big weddings that were planned. We've had to gather in small, private funeral services because we can't have the larger gatherings. We've had to learn to live without Sunday night gatherings and without small groups and without youth groups. We've had to go without hugs when we've been hurting. We've had to go without visits to the hospital of those we love. We just can't get in and we can't see them. Friends, all of this without, oh, it's been brutal at times. It's been hard at times, and yet we are here. We are surviving. We're limping along. We're trying as best we can to adjust to a new normal. And friends, I think that's why gatherings like this, even when we're masked and even as we're socially distanced, however imperfect they are, they are so yet important for our souls, just helping us get from week to week. But friend, what about a life without God? You realize that's how many are trying to live in this season. They're trying to live this season, a life without God. What would that even look like? I mean, of course, we can talk about life without toilet paper. We can talk about life without haircuts, life without sports. Yeah, we can do that. We can make do with that. But friends, again, what about a life without God? What would that do to you? What does that do to your mind, to your soul, to your body? Could that life possibly describe you this morning? A life without God or a life where maybe at best you squeeze God into the margins of your life? Do you think that's a life in which you can thrive? Do you think that's a life in which you can even survive? Well, friends, to help us think about these things, I want us to turn back in our Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28, I invite you to turn there now. And as you turn, I know we've been out of this book for a number of weeks, just as a reminder, 1 Samuel records really Israel's history of how Israel, as she was released from Egyptian bondage, how she becomes actually this forbidable monarchy, right, gone from a little tribal people into a, a significant monarchy, initially under the kingdom of uh, the kingship of Saul. And Saul is the first king. And we saw earlier that, that Saul looks the part, right? Saul's the kind of king who would have graced men's health and GQ, right? He, he looks it. The problem is he doesn't play the part. He can't play it. 
It's why God raises up another king after his own heart, right? King David, the young shepherd boy. Only, as we've seen, Saul is not too eager to relinquish his throne to this young upstart. And so, what have we seen these past a number of chapters? But we've seen David on the run. And he's been enduring great suffering and great persecution along the way. And part of what we've seen is how David is preparing us for how God's true king would always face persecution. God's true king. For him, the crown, well, there would be no crown without a cross. That's part of what 1 Samuel is preparing for us. And we left off chapter 27. David, fleeing from Saul, had finally fled to the Philistines for refuge. And we pick up the story, 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. I'll just read the first two verses. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish, who's one of the kings there, the king in Philistia, Achish says to David, very well, you shall, rather, sorry, Achish said to David, understand, understand that you and your men are to go with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay, we'll we'll stop right there. The scene opens with the Philistines gathering again for war, which if you remember and think carefully about the book of Samuel, whenever the Philistines gather for war, those are great turning points in the book. You can think of chapter 4, think of chapter 13, think of David and Goliath, chapter 17. Well, here we are again. And David, recall, has been feigning this obedience to Achish. He's been playing his own high-stakes game of poker with Achish, and now Achish calls his bluff. Achish says, okay, you're with me. Time for you to go out with the army and fight against your own people. Right? Achish calls his bluff. But before David is forced to lay down his cards, suddenly the scene is going to turn to Saul. And Saul is going to compose really the rest of the chapter. And you may, you may remember times you're sitting in your car and you're listening to the radio and driving along, perhaps enjoying a song, enjoying the news, and out of nowhere comes that loud, obnoxious, high-pitched ring followed by that familiar announcement, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Okay, you've perhaps heard that in your cars Well, that's there, right, to get your attention. It's there to arrest your attention in case there was something more important to the authorities had to alert you to. And this chapter, I think chapter 28 is here in part, and it's to alert the kind of, or I should say interrupt, the normal programming, which is David and what's happening in David's life. It interrupts that normal programming to tell us something that's happening significant in the life of Saul. And it breaks from David in order to grab our attention, focus our attention upon Saul. Because as bad as David's situation is, there amongst sort of the Philistines, he's a fugitive amongst them. As bad as that is, there is actually something worse than being trapped amongst your enemies. And that something worse is to have God as your enemy. It's to have God himself as your enemy. And that's really what unfolds in the rest of chapter 28. And we're going to look at it in really three parts. We're going to think about Saul's predicament. And then we're going to think about Saul's proposal. 
and then Saul's punishment. And as we go through those sort of three scenes, Saul's predicament, his proposal, and then his punishment, we're going to see what scenes, uh, really what lessons are for us in those scenes. So let's first think about Saul's predicament. Saul's predicament, picking up in verse 3, we continue the story. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. We're going to stop right there at the end of verse 6. So stop right there. Now we're first reminded in this scene that Samuel has died. That's really highlighting the precarious position of Israel without her central prophet. And not only that, but again, we're told the Philistines have gathered on Israel's borders to make war, and the size of their army clearly has Saul shaking in his boots. He's terrified. Friends, there are many times, many things in life that will give us an opportunity to be terrified, to be fearful, as Saul is fearful. Friend, maybe it's this pandemic that has you terrified this morning. Or maybe it's the, the loss of a job or the loss of a relationship or, or a particular diagnosis. And in that fear and uncertainty, we can feel paralyzed. We can feel sort of frozen and not sure what to do. Desperate circumstances reveal the depth of our commitments. That's part of what, what a fearful situation reveals. It, reveals how desperate circumstances reveal the depth of our own commitments. Fear has a way of exposing the quality or the lack thereof of our own faith. And in such moments, what do we reach for, right? To whom do we turn? And initially, it looks promising for Saul, because what does Saul do? Saul, well, he, he turns to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. But yet we learn Saul has a double problem. Not only are the voices of the Philistines rising, but the voice of the Lord is nowhere to be heard. Nowhere to be heard. Verse 6, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Now that may initially raise some unsettling questions. Does the Lord, does he not answer his people? Will the Lord not answer me when I cry out to him? Well, I want to suggest to you, yes, he will. He absolutely will when you call out to him in genuine faith. Now, that doesn't mean it will be according to your schedule, or it'll happen in exactly the way that you request, but God always responds in the right time and in the right way. So how do we understand Saul and what's happening here in verse 6? Well, I think we've got to step back and think about the situation and how Saul got here. Take the Urim, right? That was, that was what was enclosed in the breastplate of the ephod that the the high priest would wear. And though we don't know exactly how the Urim worked, what we do know is that it was used and it was really a a means that that priests use to discern divine guidance. Only what had happened to all the priests? Remember back to chapter 22? Saul had killed all the priests. 
only one escaped, Abiathar, the, the high priest, and he escaped with the ephod and with the Urim. So it's no wonder that the Urim could do Saul no good because he didn't possess it. It had, it had taken off with Abiathar after Saul had killed all the priests. And God did not answer by the prophets And that should not surprise us because Saul had consistently rejected the word of God's principal prophet in Samuel. In other words, the problem in verse 6, we have to recognize it is principally a, a problem of Saul's own making. It's of his own doing. You know, this week I was reading through uh, First Chronicles in my devotional. And if you are familiar with First Chronicles, First Chronicles is that book where all Bible in a year reading programs go to die. Because you start and you get through like 10, 12 chapters of genealogy after genealogy. And like you, I don't know how to pronounce the names. I'm not sure who these people are. I get lost too. I have to fight through sleeplessness, keep reading. And yet, I was in chapter 10 this week and what nugget, what little jewel did I discover? First Chronicles 10, 13, I happened on this verse about Saul. We read in 1 Chronicles 10, 13 that Saul broke faith with the Lord and he did not keep the command of the Lord. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Friends, I think those verses buried within all those genealogies, you never know what you're going to find. Those verses, well, they are great commentary on what's happening right here. They give us a window into Saul's own heart. And what we see is that Saul, Saul never wanted guidance. He just wanted deliverance. Just wanted deliverance. Saul wanted to be rescued by God. Saul wasn't so interested in a relationship with God. Saul was clearly looking for a solution to his situation. He didn't want a savior from his sin. Saul didn't truly fear God. Saul merely wanted the favor of God. Friends, I wonder if that attitude might in any way describe you. When you're in a bind, do you truly cry out to God because you fear God or because you simply want something of his favor in this moment? Are you looking for a temporary solution to your problem, or do you want a lasting Savior? Do you merely want to be rescued so that you can get on with your life, or do you want a relationship for the rest of your life? Friend, God can see right through the charade. He knows your heart. He clearly knew what resided in Saul's own heart. You cannot fool God, and God, he won't be mocked, right? God is no talisman. We saw that back in chapter four. He's not gonna be played. He's not your personal genie. He's not some spiritual pimp, right? If you treat him like some cosmic bellhop, don't be surprised the next time you ring the bell if he doesn't come running. He's not one to be manipulated and mocked and fooled. Saul hadn't heeded God's voice for years, should we be surprised that he no longer heard it? Friends, it's no different with us. No different with us. You know, have you ever noted how often people ignore God, often for years of their life, 
And then in one immediate moment, they complain that God, they think, is ignoring them. So often we turn our backs on God. We want God to leave us alone. Should we be surprised when God gives us what we want? Oh, my friend, if you persistently close off yourself, close yourself off to the voice of God's word, there will come a time when you find the voice of God closed off to you. If you, like Saul, you delight, you rejoice in the comforting words of God, you love that, but you plug your ear to the correcting voice of God, there will come a time when God gives you neither, no comforting voice and no correcting voice. And friends, that time, that will haunt you, the silence of God, when he says nothing to your pleas. Yet I think one challenge, though, you as a Christian reading this text, is we come to a text like this, and there are times in the Christian life where God feels distant like this. He seems distant. And we'll read Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 10.1 or Psalm 42.9. Why, O God, have you forgotten me? As a Christian, that is something of our own experience. There are times when it will feel like God has gone on vacation or he's blocked our calls. When he leaves us in affliction and we're tempted to think that perhaps God has forgotten us or maybe even worse, that God has forsaken us. Well, friends, what do we do in that moment? Should we assume we're we're doomed like Saul? Well, think, think about Psalm 13, you know, good exercise this afternoon. It's a short psalm. Read this psalm. Let this psalm inform how you persist with God when you feel perhaps forsaken by him. Because what does David do in Psalm 13? When David feels forgotten by God, he doesn't abandon God, but he rather continues to cry out to him. He takes his complaints to God very honestly, very frankly, He complains to God. Now, he doesn't complain about God, very careful there, but he does complain honestly, gutterly. He complains to God. The true saint perseveres and holds fast to God even when they feel like perhaps God has forgotten them. Because, friends, faith in God, faith in God always requires us to wait upon God. That is just the posture and the nature of the Christian life. Genuine faith in God will require us to wait upon God. And friend, is that what Saul does? Is that what he does? Well, let's see. You know, we've thought about his predicament. Let's, let's move on to sort of the next scene because what's Saul's now proposal to his own predicament here? What's his proposal moving to the second scene? Well, picking up in verse 7, we continue reading. Saul, so God's been silent and Saul said, verse 7, to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself, put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, 
Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her, by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Well, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Now, these verses raise, I admit, a host of questions, don't they? Can mediums, right, can witches summon the dead? Well, sort of. Does this mean we should be conjuring up the ghosts of our long-lost loved ones? No. Is this why we shouldn't play with Ouija boards? Maybe. Some of you are thinking, you know, I thought Endor was that, like, moon with those cuddly Ewoks from Return of the Jedi. You'd actually be right. You know, George Lucas, he liked, well, I don't know if he liked the Bible, but he borrowed quite a bit of the Bible when he wrote uh, his films. And if you remember the end of that film, what happens, but the spirits come to Luke, right? Obi-Wan and Yoda and Anakin, kind of a happy take on this text. All right, anyway, that's for a different sermon. Point being, we can ask interesting questions of this, this text, but so many of the questions we have actually aren't the main questions the text is trying to deal with. And what's obvious is that when Saul was faced with the silence of God, Saul didn't continue to turn and to plead with God, but he immediately, what did he do? He turned to a medium, right? A necromancer, a spiritist, someone who would conjure up the spirits and summon the dead. And if there was any doubt about the state of Saul's unrepentant heart, well, it's put to rest in these verses. For barely have we learned that the Lord hasn't answered Saul, that we find Saul Googling the near psychic. Right? Where can I go? And notice his servants don't say to him, whoa, Saul, this is going to take a while. Remember, you put all those people out of the land, verse 3. No, amazingly, his servants are like, yeah, here, I got a business card right in my pocket. They're ready to go, suggesting perhaps Saul doesn't have the most godly men around him. Well, off Saul goes immediately, and notice he disguises himself in verse 8 by disrobing himself. Remember, the robe is a sign of one's kingly rule. And so I think this small little detail is yet another subtle indication that Saul has forfeited his right to reign over Israel. And of course, he comes to the woman in verse 8. Notice he comes by night. Darkness is fitting for all the dark deeds that Saul is now pursuing. Night is, in fact, how the chapter is going to end. 
in verse 25. So everything about this exchange and everything about what follows, the sentence that follows, all of it is dark. All of it is foreboding. It's ominous. It's not going to end well. And when he comes to her, of course, the woman, she thinks it's a trap. She thinks this is some sting operation by like undercover Israeli agents, right? She, she, she doesn't want to get caught in it. And yet, well, I, I guess we should say, why would she assume that? Well, because God's word is clear. God's word has been clear. Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12 actually forbids mediums and spiritists and, and others who inquired of the dead. It refers to it as an abomination. In Leviticus 20, 27, there's actually, its capital punishment is required for such people. It's why, again, verse 3, such people have been put out of the land. It's why she was very skeptical when these people come and show up at her door. And yet, and yet here is Saul, we can't miss this, seeking wisdom from a witch. And notice what Saul says in verse 10 to convince her. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Do you feel the tragic irony right there? Saul is swearing by the Lord in order to sin against the Lord. He has the gall to do that. It's like a married man, perhaps, saying to his illicit lover, I swear on the name of my lovely wife that I will tell no one about our affair. It just makes no sense. It's crazy, but that's exactly what Saul does. Because, friends, that is how depraved, that is how darkened, that is how deceived and desperate Saul has become. And we're again, what are we watching but Saul unravel before our very eyes? And you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Because back in chapter 15, when the Lord had rejected Saul as king, Samuel warned Saul in chapter 15, 23. And he said, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Now back in chapter 15, we recognize Saul's made some pretty big mistakes. But Saul had never stooped to sorcery and to witchcraft, right? To divination, but friend, God knew. God knew what was in Saul's heart. God knew where all of this could lead, and he was warning him all the way back in chapter 15. And yet, Saul had no ears to hear. Again, he loved the comforting voice of God, but he had no ears for the correcting voice of God. And years later, what? This is exactly where we are. Be warned, my friends. You may come this morning. You may be listening. You may be flirting with sin. Maybe you're a teenager and thinking, you know, this sin, that's not that big a deal. My parents won't really know about it. It won't really affect too much. Or maybe you're 45 and maybe you're thinking, you know what? The Lord will forgive this little indiscretion. It won't cost me much. He'll forgive it. Friends, little sins have a way of paving a path for larger sins, which will pave the way for unthinkable sins. That's how sin works. It deceives. You may think a small capitulation here or the slight indiscretion there, you may not think that's a really big deal. 
But sin isn't happy with just a small part of you. Sin wants all of you. And it won't stop until it has all of you. Once you begin to make concessions and make excuses for sin, there is no end. Look at Saul. See where that path leads. It's why we are called to guard our heart above all else, for it is the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. One of the sad truths we see about Saul is that deeply religious men can still be desperately lost men. Right? Deeply religious men can still be desperately lost men. And deeply religious men can as well be deeply rebellious men. You can be religious and rebellious against God. Saul needed a divine savior. He didn't need a divining seer. But he didn't have ears to hear. He no longer did. Friend, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Now, we're not told how this woman conjures up the ghost of Samuel. You know, I'm personally of the opinion that most mediums are, are spiritists, that, right? They're charlatans, they're fakes. So if you can think back to that old movie, Ghost. Remember Whoopi Goldberg? Oda May, right? She was a charlatan. She was a fake. She couldn't, she couldn't converse with the dead, which is why when Patrick Swayze comes on and he talks to her, what? she's shocked. She wasn't ready for it. Well, this is the same here. We don't actually get the impression that this woman expected to see Samuel. She walks through her mystical kind of hocus-pocus routine, and voila, Samuel appears, and she kind of freaks out. She wasn't ready for it, suggesting that all this really wasn't the work, I don't think, of her hands, but this was God working in an unusual and an unexpected way. Friends, here's the thing. When God seems silent... When he seems silent, when his ears seem deaf to our prayers, we can be tempted like Saul to run to extraordinary means. To run to extraordinary means. But did you notice what we read in the scripture reading, that corporate scripture reading from Isaiah 8 earlier in the service? Isaiah 8 verse 19. And when they, the people of the land, say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Part of what God is saying to his people is why in the world would you inquire of the dead when you have the living God? When you have him, why inquire of the dead? Now some of you may be thinking, right, who does that? Who would do that? But friends, in today's New Age spirituality, Right, we're bespoke religions. You can just craft and create your own. Spirituality practices like this are actually on the rise. It's estimated today that in Italy, right, the cradle of Roman Catholicism, there are more mediums than there are priests. Astrology. When I was growing up, that was kind of the thing that you'd find on like the back page of the tabloids. But friends, astrology, you, you, can, you can learn about sort of your sign and horoscope and the rest in every major newspaper. Among millennials, it's up over 400% as a practice. You don't need, though, God is saying, you don't need to gaze at the stars to find out what's in store for you. You don't need to consult horoscopes 
tarot cards, go to a palm reader or some spiritist. That is not the extraordinary means that we're called to pursue. Instead, Isaiah 8.20 says what? You're not to do things to pursue and seek the dead when you have the living God. But what did we read earlier? Go to God's instruction. 8.20, go to God's testimony. Right? We're called as God's people to go to God's word. Think about it. Why in the world do we consult the dead when we have the living word, Jesus Christ? Why would we consult the dead when we have one who's come back from the dead? When Peter and James and John, you know, when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus in his glory, do you remember what God says to them? He doesn't say, behold Jesus, gaze at him, be transfixed by him. God says what? Listen to him. Listen to his words. Because God's word is what? Hebrews, living and active. And yet, friends, so often, this living word, we say it's not enough. We want some extra message. We want God to speak to us more directly, more supernaturally, we might say, more extraordinarily. We look to dreams, maybe. We look to visions. We, we hold out our own fleeces with God. The problem is, friends, God doesn't promise to use such extraordinary means, he can use them, yes. There's no doubt about that. He just doesn't promise to ordinarily use them. So friends, why would you pray? Why would you pray and why would you seek what God doesn't promise when his promised word is right in front of you? If you are pursuing a word from God this morning, start by reading the words of God. It's that simple. If you are pursuing a word from God this morning, start by reading the words of God. Go to the instruction, to the testimonies. That is exactly what God would have you do. And by his spirit, he'll work that word in and through you and give you what you need. For the problem is not. The problem is not that God hasn't spoken to us. He has, right? God has spoken perfectly, perfectly to us as well in the person of Jesus Christ the problem is more often that we're either too lazy or too indifferent or too disinterested in what God has to say to us. We don't have the patience to open up his word. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we seem confused, if we seem to lack guidance. Now we've thought about Saul's predicament. And we've thought about his ghastly proposal just to have a little fun on puns as Troglin did last week, right? Friends, where does this all go? We have to close with that third. Where does it go? Saul's punishment. We've got to think thirdly about Saul's punishment. We pick up verse 16. Verse 16. Saul, through this woman, I think by God's clear aid, has summoned Samuel. And now Samuel says, verse 16, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. 
Let's just stop there at verse 18. I think here it's, it's made explicit what was only earlier implied. And that's simply that Saul cannot hear the word of God because he had rejected the word of God. Right? He cannot hear it because he had previously rejected it. So that reference to Amalek goes back to chapter 15. Recall Saul is the new king. God had given the task to, to root out and destroy the Amalekites and all of their livestock. And yet what, what happens? Right? Saul, Saul doesn't do it. And Samuel has to come and confront him. And Saul says, no, no, I obey the Lord. And Samuel's like, well, then what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? If you remember that story, well, he did not obey the voice, the clear voice of the Lord. Saul had twisted God's word back in chapter 15. He had rewritten it. You know, it was just a few sheep, Saul reasoned. And so he had rewritten it for his own benefit. Perhaps for Saul, this was a harmless bit of accommodation. Why would God care about a few fattened sheep? But while Saul may have seen that as accommodation to keep some of the sheep and the livestock, God saw it as it was. It was rebellion. Saul's accommodation was rebellion against God. Friend, I think it's a great moment to stop and ask yourself, are there ways in which you have sought to accommodate are the ways in which you have silenced or twisted God's word in favor of your own accommodation of that word? Maybe are you tempted to ignore or to reinterpret what the Bible has to say about gender and sexuality all in the vein of accommodation? I know it's tempting, right? Culture increasingly hates. Indeed, culture is increasingly working to criminalize the Bible's sexual ethic, I get it. Accommodation would be easier, but accommodation is rebellion. It's direct rebellion against God. Or perhaps have you silenced God's word when it says you're to love your enemy and you're to pray for your enemy? Or the need to forgive one who has sinned against you up to 77 times? Or to stay true and faithful to those covenant vows of marriage? There are many ways we can be tempted to tweak and twist and seek to accommodate God's word to our own preferences. But any attempt to reinterpret that word is to reject that word. It is to despise it. And if you despise God's word, one of the things we're seeing is that God will take that word from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will suffer God's silence. And this is the horrifying consequence of a life without God. In the greatest crisis, perhaps, of Saul's life, the voice of the one person he most needs is the voice of the one person that is closed to him. And notice, for all of this accommodation, Saul became perhaps a friend of the world, certainly a friend of the Israelites who enjoyed some of those fattened sheep. But he had become an enemy of God. Right, James 4.4. 4. And the truth is, friends, we can actually have many enemies and we can be just fine in this life. Jesus, in fact, promised us that we'll have many enemies in this life. Unbelieving parents, he says, could become our enemies. Other family members could become our enemies. Friends, coworkers, classmates can all become our enemies as we seek to follow Christ faithfully. 
realize everyone can be your enemy and you're going to be okay. There's just one person you can't have as your enemy. There is one person you cannot have as your enemy and that is God himself. In Christ, he will crush every enemy under his feet. Saul wanted a life without God. But friend, part of what we're seeing is in the end, there's actually no such thing. There's no such thing as a life without God. For God cannot be escaped. He cannot be put on a shelf. We cannot dodge him forever. One way or another, when it comes to us and God, there will be a reckoning. And not only must Saul suffer God's silence in this life, but we keep reading verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Friends, those are chilling words. Nobody wants to hear from a ghost that I'll be seeing you and your kids real soon. Those are the last words you would ever want to hear. And though the king was established, back in 1 Samuel 9, the king was established especially to save my people from the hand of the Philistines because of Saul's own disobedience, now the king and the people are going to be given into the hand of the Philistines. Everything is backward. Everything is upside down at this point. And friends, that is the end of a life without God. That is where it leads. It's not pretty. It never is. And it underscores, I think, just the main point of all of chapter 28. And the main point of this chapter, I think, is simply this. The one who forsakes God will be forsaken by God. If you forsake God, as Saul has clearly done, you will be forsaken by God. And Saul's fate, it's sealed. And we finish the story. Continuing in verse 20. After hearing this, Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he hadn't eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've had to say to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Now listen, it may strike you as a bit odd, as it did to me reading initially this week. Why so much time spent on these last number of verses? Why are we given all these details, all this precious space of Saul's own response? Perhaps it is there to underscore the hopelessness of a condemned man. And in that way, 
it, it serves as a, as a further kind of warning to us, right? We, that we feel the weight of the text so that we don't follow in Saul's own wake. Perhaps all these verses are there for that reason. Or perhaps it's actually there to stubborn, uh, rather to highlight the stubbornness of Saul's own unrepentant heart. For notice, while Saul won't listen to the wisdom of God, he will listen to the wisdom of this witch. He does. He listens to her words. And notice, notice what he's eating in that final meal. A little detail you could run right over. He's eating what? He's eating a fattened calf. So here at the end, we find Saul dining on the very thing he wouldn't destroy back in chapter 15, the fattened calves. You know, it's a fitting end, if you think about it, for a condemned king, feasting on the very thing that has destroyed him. Friends, Saul is not repentant at all. That's because a repentance that does not change you in this life will not save you in the next life. A repentance that does not change you in this life will not save you in the next life. Saul went through the motions. We've seen it. He tearfully confesses his sins. He cries out. He pleads for forgiveness. But he never had a change of heart. Even here, we can see it. He never trusted God fully enough to surrender to him, nor did he value God enough to be satisfied in him. Friends, what is true repentance? To quote another author, repentance is full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that leads to unconditional surrender to God. Let me say that again. Repentance is full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that leads to unconditional surrender to God. And yet, what have we seen about Saul? But that his repentance was always conditional and it was always partial. Always conditional and always partial. But friends, I think these verses are here for another reason. I think they're here because notice in verse 22, what does the woman offer to Saul? but a morsel of bread. And how does the scene end, verse 25, but with Saul eating? And then we read closing words, and then they rose and went away that night. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of anyone in the New Testament who also ate a morsel of bread and then went out at night, a condemned man? It's Judas. On the night he betrayed Jesus, John 13, 30, we read, so after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Because Saul, like Judas, had not only rejected God, but like Judas, Saul too had conspired to kill God's truly anointed king. The last meals, if you will, of two condemned men. Both had been, well, both had forsaken God, and both would be forsaken by God. And yet we have to recognize there's another. There's another who would, after a meal, another 
head out after that meal into the darkness. There was another one who would cry out himself, a condemned man, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Saul's words in verse 28, 15, you could put Saul's words on Jesus' own lips. God has turned away from me and answers me no more. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet this one Jesus who died, this one uniquely though, what would he do? He would rise. He would rise because he did not die for his own sins. He had no sins himself that condemned him. Yet he willingly took upon himself our sins, upon his shoulders. Jesus truly became God forsaken so that we would never have to be. He became God forsaken for us so that we would not have to be. Jesus endured the temporary darkness of God's absence so that we in him could walk in the newness and the light of life. Every single one of us here, every single person listening has betrayed God. We have rejected his word. We deserve to be rejected in return. But the beautiful news of the gospel is that when we turn, when we turn to this Jesus, when we repent of our sins, find satisfaction in him, and wholly turn to him, and place our faith in him, and in his good word to us, holding fast to that word, and this Jesus who was forsaken and rejected for us, we then can be reconciled to God. Friend, have you been reconciled to God? Have you been reconciled to him? Or you, will you ignore God's voice? Will you reject his plea? And will you suffer eternally? Those are the only options. For the one who forsakes God will be forsaken by God. But one was forsaken for us that we might be reconciled to God. Friend, have you been reconciled to this God? Let's pray. God, we delight in all of your word. Lord, those chapters, even in thick darkness, as chapter 28 reflects, notes in deep minor keys, Oh God, we need that warning that we not abandon your voice, close ourselves off to your word, silence ourselves from you. God, we pray that you would spare us, that we would continue to hold fast to you and delight in you, the author and giver of life who was forsaken for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.